BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 Plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I swung the election, friends. That's no small order. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I have a question for you guys. Yeah. Have you ever Googled yourself daily? To be met with horror, not because of something that you did that's chronicled on the internet in an embarrassing way, Uh but because somebody has the same name as you, and they're higher in Google results than you are, (laughs) and they do something that you don't necessarily want people thinking that you do. It is very difficult for me to answer this question uh, without 
putting my own personal philosophy on the line, I'll just say yes. <laughs> uh, speaking as, from what I can tell, the one and only Lauren Vogelbaum on this planet. Oh, that's a lucky condition. Uh, yeah, I, I actually don't know how that feels. Well, there's somebody with the same name as me who's some kind of erotic photographer. Well, <laughs> let me just say this. I, there is a certain conservative senator from Texas who probably is irritated that he has the same name that I do. Oh, really? <laughs> like he's tired of getting emails about how this new app works? No, and... I say, actually, I say senator. I think he's out of the state House of Representatives, so I believe I misspoke. But yes, there is a politician in Texas who has the same name as I do, and I'm sure he is endlessly irritated by my tweets, etc. Yeah. Why are people asking me how Mjolnir works? <laughs> or how do you say that? Mjolnir. Mjolnir. Okay. Well. Or Mew Mew. <laughs> Mew Mew. Yeah. This is going to be related to the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is Google rankings. Yeah. Or I, I'd say more broadly, search rankings, though. Sure. Let's be honest. What we're really talking about is Google. At least uh, here yeah. in the United States. Sure, sure. We read this really good article in Wired by one Adam Rogers. It's called Google Search Algorithm Could Steal the Presidency. And we found it so interesting because in it, Rogers introduces a concept that he calls Google mandering. Yeah. Say what? Google mandering. As in Say it Jerry, a third time. Google mandering. And... <laughs> And it's now the spirit a, of Google has appeared with us here in the recording I thought studio. It was, I thought it was a, an introductory class at Hogwarts. It was, you know, you had your <laughs> herbology and Google mandering. No, no, but based on gerrymandering, which of course is the practice of, of rigging a election populations to get the results that you're looking for. Right. Right. So maybe if you have a lot of people who you're expecting to vote against your party, you can just safely confine them all to one weirdly shaped district. So they're not going to be threatening to vote in your district. Yeah, the the basic idea here is that the way that search results could be displayed might influence someone's decision on an important you know, thing like who to vote for in an election. What? That's so crazy, you guys. Google surely cannot influence something so personal as voting decisions or something so complex as election results, right? Well, so here we're going to get into something that is sort of a, a, a requires some standing back and analyzing yeah. the way media affects our perception. Now, the way media affects our voting is pretty obvious in one sense, as in you can read articles or watch television or get any other kinds of sources of entertainment or information that tend to favor one side of a deba debate over the other side. Right. But there's a different way that your media can affect your decisions, and it can be at the the level above that, not just that you're looking at one article and it, and it consistently favors one side over another, but in the selection or availability of sources available to you. Yeah. So in other words, uh, I mean, well, let's put it to a very simple way. If you lived in a very uh, remote location mm -hmm. and only one newspaper ever uh, arrived and that newspaper had a very specific slant, uh, political slant, and that's all the information you get – it would be very difficult for you to make yeah. an unbiased decision. Like if you can only get the 
anarchist world news today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In which case, you're just, you probably just don't vote. <laughs> but, but, but you don't vote with authority. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's a, that's an example. So now, when we talk about the, the use of online sources and also just, just the various media sources that are out there, we're not necessarily boiling it down to something that's simplistic. But the point being that when you get one of these influential voices to come into an area, there appears to be a measurable impact to that. Uh, yeah, and that's not – you don't have to take our word for it. No. Um, there's a, there is a actual phenomenon called the Fox News effect. Well, no. Okay, so to be clear, we're not going to be taking a political stance one no. way or another. This is about the measurable effects of media availability in sure. regions. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so the Fox News Channel, as you may or may not know, started up in October of 1996, uh, wherein it joined other 24-hour cable news channels like CNN and MSNBC. And, you know, okay, the, the channel has long maintained to have no bias <laughs> towards anything other than fairness. Um, but it's always been on the conservative side of fairness. Yeah, I, I think everybody's aware of this. Yeah. Different channels tend to have different political leanings. You can you can expect MSNBC to be more to the left. You mm-hmm. can expect Fox News to be more to the right. Sure. sure. Uh, so it was introduced into the cable packages of some like 20% of towns in the United States between 1996 and November of 2000, which was the year of the Bush versus Gore versus Ralph Nader kind of sort of (laughs) presidential election. And a group from the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is this nonprofit and hypothetically nonpartisan organization that studies the economy and politics, saw in this an opportunity for learning specifically about media bias and putting some numbers into it. So they gathered voting data from over 9,000 towns, and they found that the Republican Party had gained uh, 0.4 to 0.7 percentage points in towns that had gained access to Fox News, and and furthermore, that the channel had encouraged voter turnout. Their, their estimates are that the channel convinced some like 3 to 8 percent of its viewers to vote Republican. Mm-hmm. Which which sounds like a small amount, but that is more than enough to have included like 10,000 voters in Florida, which is enough to have flipped the state, which was the decider in the year 2000 election. I like the use of decider, decider there. Nice, yeah. It oh, certainly yeah. was. Yeah, so f- everything turned on Florida. That's where we had the recount and we eventually had to have the U.S. Supreme Court step in and say, OK, we're we're putting an end to this. Congratulations, Captain Bush. <laughs> and and to be clear, uh, the three to eight percent that were convinced to to vote Republican, many of those could have been self-identifying Republicans well before the Fox News uh, channel came on. They were just, you know, convinced to go out and actually cast a vote partially because of Fox News. So right. it's not to say that, you know, when a media uh, a company of some sort enters into a, a region that it magically changes uh, uh, three to eight percent of the population to that side. Oh, no, sure. I, I think usually those estimates are referring to um, to undecided voters. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting here, I think, is that this is a comment about the effects of the availability of different types of sources. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily that in these towns where suddenly they got access to Fox News on cable, everybody was sat was, you know, made to sit in a room and forced to watch Fox News. But now you have these sources of available. Some people are going to consume those sources. And it appeared to have some effect on how people voted. Mm-hmm. 
But there are other ways that selection of messaging in media can have an effect on voter turnout and on elections. Yeah. So you're referring specifically to a campaign that Facebook ran to uh, to inspire people to go out and vote. This is great because in this case, it is a supposedly entirely neutral message. Right. It doesn't say go vote for my anarchist candidate, Claus (laughs) McGrabby Claus. Yeah. I don't know. That's why I, I would vote in that anarchist party. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, no. Uh, F- Facebook in this experiment, which Facebook sometimes runs experiments on you guys. I just you, you should know that yeah. just flat out to start with. It's but, pretty cool. You're helping science whether you want to or not. Yeah, you're a product and a science experiment. Huzzah! <laughs> no, no. It's it's great though. I mean, because because. They were able to gain a sample of 61 million users who were 18 or older who accessed the site on the day of the congressional election in 2010. Mm-hmm. And and they're, they just put out these messages about going out and voting. It wasn't, again, it wasn't voting for a particular person. Uh, it was just either either go vote or go vote and check out how many other friends of yours have gone and voted. So the, the experiment split their overall sample into three groups. One percent, about uh, six hundred eleven thousand users, was a control group that actually received no message. Another one percent received a purely informational message at the top of their news feed that just encouraged them to vote, linked to info about local polling spots, provided an optional "I voted" button to click, and <laughs> and gave account of other Facebook users who had clicked on it. of the sample, about 60 million users, got all of that informational stuff, plus a little social message that included the profile pics of up to six of their Facebook friends who had clicked the I voted button. And they were furthermore, the the researchers were furthermore able to match 6.3 million of those users with public voting records to see whether their messages had affected voting practices. And I mean, they did. Uh, well, OK, they, they found that the informational message actually had no effect. <laughs> Big surprise. Uh-huh. Uh, Text is boring. <laughs> uh, but but the social message made people 0.3 percent more likely to click through to polling information and 0.4 percent more likely to actually go and vote. And that might sound like a tiny effect. But remember that we're dealing with those those millions and millions of study participants so the researchers estimate that about 340,000 people went to the polls who otherwise would not have gone because they saw that social message. Yeah, the interesting thing to me here, besides the fact that there was a, a noticeable effect of this approach, is that Facebook could very easily sway an election simply by sending the go vote message to people that had been identified as being sympathetic toward the mission statement of Facebook. So in other words, if Facebook has particular uh, policies that they really want passed and there are particular politicians associated with those policies, and because we share everything we have on Facebook, we, we tell Facebook everything, our deepest, darkest secrets, we whisper into its ear, mm-hmm. they can identify with pretty high precision which people would be the most sympathetic toward the candidates that they themselves would want to support. Or if you want to get conspiratorial in another direction, you could say that Facebook could potentially sell this service to a candidate. So maybe if suddenly 
Claus McGrabby Claus is flush with cash, he could go and pay Facebook to just tell people who have said supportive things about the anarchist crab party to go vote on Election Day, but not to tell anybody else to go vote. Right. So in other words, the ones who are most likely to support that message get the extra uh, incentive or the extra uh, encouragement to go and vote. The other people don't get that encouragement. And ultimately, Facebook could say, look, we didn't tell them who to vote for. We didn't tell the other people not to vote. All we did was send out a vote message. That's all we said. And it ends up being this, the, you know, it's it's almost like all we had to do was put the idea into people's heads and stand back and let the rest happen. Now, that's about a social networking platform. That's something that could potentially happen, although you could probably figure that out. <laughs> like it, you were talking about numbers large enough where that sort of thing would probably become apparent pretty quickly. And I'm guessing would not reflect too well upon said social network. Let's talk about search engines. And and why they would matter in an election is just that people use them to do research these days. Uh, for example, in the days leading up to and just following the 2012 presidential election, Google users' interest in search terms related to uh, Mitt Romney reached the highest that they have ever been by far. And terms related to Barack Obama spiked higher than they had since his initial election in 2008. So Yeah, pe- so people were – they were cramming for the final. Right. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? If if people are turning to search engines in order to get information, and we've already established that the types of information you get can influence your decisions, it stands to reason that the search engine's uh, results page has to be pretty important. Yeah, but okay, let me play the dumb guy here. Okay, sure. No, not the dumb guy. Let me play the guy with the reasonable concern. Okay. Okay, reasonable concern guy. The internet is a democratizing force because isn't it great that you can go into a search engine and you can get information that represents all the points of view out there. You can find articles that are pro-Barack Obama. You can find articles anti-Barack Obama. You can find pro-Mitt Romney. You can find anti-Mitt Romney. And you might only be able to find articles that are pro-Claus McGrabby Claus, but that's because he is so wonderful. But the point is, whatever information people want to present, whatever opinions they want to publish, you can find it on the Internet. So why why wouldn't the Internet be a perfectly neutral source to get your information from? Well, first, it, it, that works under the assumption that every single web page out there is treated equally by search engines. Ah, and we know that not only is that not the case, it in fact cannot be yeah, the case. Because how would you present every single potential return on any given query where they're all ranked at the same level – would you just have an infinitely scrolling bar? Would you just have a, a, a camera view that is constantly hovering over different uh, titles? And even so, then what order do you put them in? Because that alone creates some sort of sense of rank. Yeah. Now, you could say, well, wait a minute. What if we randomize search results so that we and nothing gets preferentially treated and featured toward the top? But that would sort of go – exactly at cross purposes of what somebody like Google is trying to do, where they're constantly 
trying to give you the best possible result for whatever terms you entered. Uh, right. Yeah, that, that's why we go to Google more often than to other search engines, yeah. because it more frequently returns us uh, links that we're interested in. Right, yeah. so that it would go entirely against their interests and, to be frank, our interests if they were to say, well, let's randomize all of the different articles about Barack Obama and Mitt Romney so that none of them get preferential treatment. Yeah, randomization would just mean that – for because. Let's go outside of the elections for a second. You don't want random results for any given query. When you put in a query, <laughs> what you're the what you want to see on that first page of results, which I'll get to in a second, is uh, a link to a site that answers the question you have, gives you the information you want, links to the restaurant you're looking up, whatever it may be. That's what you get. You you aren't you don't want a random thing that happens to relate tangentially or otherwise to whatever it was you were looking for. So because of Google's uh, uh, efficient means of returning search results, it has shaped our behaviors online. Uh, and this is something that we've seen over and over again in various studies. So most of us don't bother to look beyond the first page of search results for any given query. Yeah, most of that's us, how it is. <laughs> yeah, most of us put in a search <laughs> query. Well, it, and you don't want to, right? You you have well, better it's wasting things. Wasting your time. Yeah, you but, have better things to do than to go through eighteen pages of search results trying to find one that is the closest and most relevant to to what you are searching for. At least if it's something you know, especially something casual, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't I don't want to spend twenty five minutes going through to find uh, something like I'm looking up shoes. Well, I want that on number one. You know, in my experience as someone who has been doing various kinds of deep research on the web for many years now, I can say that I think the organization and prioritization of Google search results has gotten demonstrably better over the past 10 years mm-hmm. or so. It used to be much more common that to find the ideal example of the thing I'm looking for, I would have to go deep into other pages. That happens way less now. Now it's it's way more common that exactly the thing I'm looking for or the best example of the thing I'm looking for available on the web is on the first page. Which is both good and bad. It's good in the sense that we're finding the stuff we want uh, more quickly than before. Mm-hmm. It's bad in that if you are doing research into a topic and you're unfamiliar with that topic – uh, you have been conditioned yeah. to go after those first few links and it may behoove you to go deeper to find, to get a full understanding of whatever topic it is that you're, you're researching. Um, it, but see, I mostly do research on academic subjects and this is also problematic because if you're looking at academic subjects, most of the time, not always, uh, but most of the time you're looking at a kind of objective approach. To whatever the subject matter is. Uh, and, and most of the subjects that you're researching are fairly objective to begin with. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not something so hot button as, as political stuff. Right. Yeah. So if I were doing searches on political stuff, it may be that I would discover more of a leaning on one side or the other. I mean, that's a possibility. I just haven't done that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what I use Google for. Well, yeah. And if you do go deep into the search results on certain political candidates, you'll find that there's tons of garbage out there yeah. that's not going to be useful to anybody on either side unless you're just looking for some slander to rile you up. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, and, and that's for that's for relatively, you know, popular terms that a lot of people are going to be writing about that the 
the problem that I wind wind up running into with Google is that I don't know, you know, I, I do so much research. I start mm-hmm. so much research there that I'd say that about like once every week or two, I wind up having to go through some like dozen iterations of a search term or or dig like several pages back in the search results just to find what I'm looking for. Uh, partially probably because of the human error of me looking for information on a topic that I know nothing about and thus don't know the right terms to search with. Sure. But sometimes it's kind of like, no, Google, I did not want to know about specialty cheese shops in my area when I searched for active cheese culture. (laughs) You find like the... The neighborhood where all the joggers go to the cheese shop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's the active cheese culture in yeah, my neighborhood. Oh, thanks, Google. Yeah, no, I, I. Or is it the one where the cheeses are all living in a culture where they're active? Like Fraggle Rock kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, uh, I, I encounter the same thing all the time, uh, mm-hmm. re- researching for podcasts, in fact. In fact, the, uh, the other topic that we will be recording today as we're sitting in the studio, I was having issues with that where I, I kept on going back and putting in different search terms because I thought, there's got to be a study about this. <laughs> and I could not find something. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, 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 this is a common issue. So mm-hmm. that's also something that take into account is that the search results will be as close to relevant as possible. It behooves Google to have that. If, if Google was seen as being an unreliable source for relevant information, people wouldn't use Google. And that's where Google's value is. So they have they have a an incentive to do that. However. Yeah. So let's look at the ways then that search results actually do matter in practice. Yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, because, because, again, you don't have to take our word for it. People people have done actual research on how likely people are to click past the first page of Google results. Jonathan, not at all. <laughs> tell, me, tell me what percentage of clicks go to the first page. 91.5%. <laughs> so more than 9 out of 10 clicks in Google results are going to happen out of the first page. Yeah, or if you want to think of it another way, fewer than 1 out of 10 will go to the second page or beyond. Yeah, so it's not just to the second page, it's to all other results on the entire web combined. Yeah, when you see like 4.8 trillion results returned for for your search query, 91.5% of the clicks are going on that first page. And And, and not even on that first page, right? Yeah, 32.5% of them are going straight to that first result. Now, is this including the sponsored ad results? This is going to the, I believe it's the non-sponsored ones. So uh, sponsored ones also take up some of that percentage, obviously. The second result gets 17.6%. So clearly, first place is the place to be. That's where you're going to get the most traffic. Um, And also, if you look at the last result on the first page of a search engine results page. Why would you ever scroll all the way down to the last result on the first page? Well, very few people do, as a matter of fact, but those who do still greatly outnumber the, those who the, go to the second those page. who go to the second page. So, yeah, if you look at the number of people who click on the the final result on the first page of a search engine results page, it's 140 percent more people than those who click on the first result of the second page. Wow. So if you're somebody wow. who's putting content on the web, whether whether you're trying to monetize it as a business, like you're writing articles and sure. you make your money through advertising, mm-hmm. you need clicks to keep going or whether you're just trying to get your message out in one way or another, if you want people to see your page being on the first page of search results is crucial. It's a huge help. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that we always hear is is becoming less important because of the rise of the importance of social networking. Mm-hmm. But it's still 
easily one of the best ways to drive huge amounts of traffic. If you what people call own a search term, huh. if you own a search term, then you become the destination for everyone who searches for that. Because if you're if you're number one on that list, you're getting 32 percent of that traffic. If it's a popular search term, that 32 percent translates into hundreds of thousands of page views. That's a big deal. But what if the search term you own is somebody else's name and that person's name, that's the name of a political candidate and you don't like that political candidate? Well, if if you are the go-to source for that, then that number one result could be a very negative uh, portrayal of said candidate and – that's just that's just the way it is. Yeah, Although, I mean, we, if you're in Europe, there's actually some way of, of getting around that. But that's <laughs> here in the United <laughs> yeah. States that hasn't well, filtered down. Here in the United States, this worked out to particularly unfortunate effects for one Republican contender in recent years. Y'all, I'm sure, are aware of the Rick Santorum effect. Sure. Uh-huh. We don't need to go into detail about the about the Santorum web the, the, campaign. The, the trolling that occurred around this dude. Yeah. But yeah. If you are interested in reading up on that and don't mind some kind of gross subjects, you can go right ahead. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we, we've seen that there are, there are huge incentives for anyone who's going to be using uh, search engine traffic to drive whatever it is they're doing, whether it's a political campaign, a company, an organization, whatever it may be. There's a huge incentive for them to try and get on that first page because mm-hmm. uh, being anywhere else, you might as well not even worry about search engine traffic. You've got to concentrate on something else. You want to you have to be on that first page to to leverage traffic. Uh, sure. But getting onto that first page is a really tricky game. Yeah, because it's not like it is in the old days. Like in the old days with search engines, one of the things you could do is you could pepper your your page with tons of irrelevant metadata that had you nothing know, to do with your content. You know, I this page is an ad for the virtues of Grabby or what's his name? Grabby Claus. Grabby Claus. Claus McGrabby Claus. Claus McGrabby Claus. But also, you might like this page if you're interested in Metallica, Britney yeah. Spears, right? Yeah. What were the other things popular in the early 2000s? Active <laughs> cheese cultures. I don't right. know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you've ever gone to one of those old web pages where there's just a a just a garbage pile of unrelated words at the bottom of the page. Or sometimes it's hidden where they made the text the same color as the background. Mm-hmm. That was an attempt to game the system, to get on that first page by not only trying to get, be, you know, look like you're an important page, but also just throw in so many search terms that no matter what someone was searching, they would end up at your page. Never mind the fact that the information on that page may be completely irrelevant to the search query. That no one cared about that. They wanted the page views. Mm. They wanted that little page counter that was on everybody's home page way back in the day to mm-hmm. click up a notch. Yeah. Um, but. Come for the false advertising, stay for the dancing babies. Yeah. Now, eventually, search engine <laughs> algorithms got more sophisticated than that. Engineers built better algorithms that would uh, ignore this metadata. In fact, today's Google algorithms that Google says that metadata plays like no role at all mm. in page ranking, that it's more important that the uh, page actually contain relevant information that is key to whatever the query was. Sure. And part of that is decided based on how many other pages link to this page. Yeah. yeah. So if I'm doing a search for... Now, people can try to game that too, but... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But first, let's say that I'm, I'm doing a search for uh, a particular uh, candidate. Um, and I'm not going with uh, yours because I'm I'm 
frankly, I'm I'm the I'm in the anti crab party. I'm more of a lobster party. I will go with Pinchy O'Houlihan. So you're against the crab anarchist party. You're yeah. in the lobster fascist party. <laughs> fascist <laughs> is such a such a such a cruel word. I, I think of them as the imperialists. The law and order party. Yeah. So Pinchy, lobster law party. So Pinchy yeah. O'Houlihan. Yeah. Let's say let's okay. say um, you know, I want to do a search on Pinchy O'Houlihan. Well. <laughs> The, the website that comes up first may be one that lots of other websites link to whenever they are commenting upon Pinchy O'Houlihan. So there might be news stories that link back to this website, uh, and there might be lots of other blog pages, all sorts of stuff. Uh, the way page ranking works in general is that incoming links are worth a certain amount. Also, they're weighted. So mm-hmm. incoming links from more important pages are worth more. So in other words, like uh, a, a big um, news outlet like CNN, if they link out, that link out is worth more than Joe Bob's blog. lobster blog. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Bob blah blah's law blog is not going to be as big <laughs> as CNN. So, uh, you know, th- those are both factors in it. Now, people tried to game the system, too. Uh, they, there were a lot of, I mean, you probably have encountered this where you've done Link a search. spamming. And, oh, yeah. yeah. You go to, you, you find a, you know, you do a search for something, something pops up, and, you know, you click on the first result because 91 point, you know, or 32.5% of us do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So you click on that first result, and it, what it takes you to is just a list of links. And yeah. all it is is just links all, for days all the way down the page. People tried to make these link farms in order to game the system mm-hmm. and build up other page ranks of other sites. But, you know, eventually algorithms got sophisticated enough to see that, too. Yeah. Uh, in in one entertaining and slightly less soul-sucking <laughs> example, uh, there, there was one time very briefly back in the days that I was on LiveJournal, a, uh, an instance of Neil Gaiman attempting to get the search term Pendulette to lead to Neil Gaiman's website. <laughs> <laughs> and he succeeded because he's Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And well, he owns the internet. Why Pendulette? Because he had some like some like temporary jokey feud with Pendulette. He was like, hey, I bet I can do this weird thing to you. And Pendulette was like, no, you can't. <laughs> and that's my Pendulette impersonation. I'm yeah. not sure it's very quality. Yeah, but... yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. He's got kind of a growly voice. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, and that, I mean, that was one of those things where there were, it was easier to game the system. It's harder to do it now. Yeah. Uh, these days, the way Google pitches it anyway is that in order to get on that first page of results, you need to demonstrate that the site that that page belongs to is dependable, that the information inside is relevant to the search query, that it's of a high quality. Uh, these are all, you know, qualities that are difficult to it's difficult to say how they measure yeah. that. Google kinda, doesn't make their algorithm public, by the way. They it's it's secret sauce. I mean, stuff like that sounds highly subjective to me. So it's hard to know how they could really verify that. Uh, well, sure, yeah, but but okay. So so e- either way, there are all these algorithms at work that are choosing what we see yeah. when we open up a, a Google search, right? Yeah. And you know, d- depending on what the content of those articles is. We're we're going to run into some bias on that first term that we click on. Yeah. And in fact, if we were to be a little unethical, let's say that we're in charge of a an enormous search engine and we can actually tweak things so that very specific search we, we can rank essentially dynamically whatever the pages yeah. are and present the links that are most in line with our own worldview as 
the top ranking ones and put the ones that maybe argue with our worldview further down, we already know 91.5% of everyone who goes to that search engine results page is clicking on that first page of results. So, yeah, if the president of Arthropod Google prefers uh, <laughs> Pinchio Hulan, yeah. you might very well get a first page that's heavy on the pro Pinchy literature. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, so we're not saying that we think Google is doing this. No, but, but the potential is there. And yeah. it's, as it turns out, pretty well researched. Yeah, so this is going to be the core of this episode here is this paper by a couple guys named Robert Epstein and Ronald E. Robertson. They, they address this effect that they call the search engine manipulation effect uh, and its possible impact on the outcomes of elections. That was the title of the paper. In a 2015 paper that they released through the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, and in this paper they reviewed the results of five different experiments carried out in two countries testing the effects of search engine results on subjects' voting preferences. Right. So they they were working with the hypothesis that the search engine results could affect a person's decision-making uh, just based upon which results are presented first. Mm-hmm. Right? And that it could affect enough people that it could, in fact, sway an election. Right. So they started in San Diego. They started small to just test the hypothesis on a, uh, a relatively tiny sample size. They gathered 102 volunteers. They were The volunteers were actually paid for their participation in the experiment. All the volunteers in the experiments we're talking about got a tiny payment. I think in the first one it was $25, but mm-hmm. in subsequent ones it was lower. Uh, the volunteers were presented with two candidates uh, for a 2010 election, which had already happened. Mm-hmm. In Australia. In Australia. These are people in San Diego mm-hmm. given two candidates for prime minister of Australia in 2010. Um, and uh, the two candidates were Tony Abbott and Julia Gillard. And the 102 volunteers were divided into three test groups. So what the researchers wanted to do was present the group with choices that they weren't likely to have previous knowledge about. They wanted to they wanted to say, all right, well, here are these two candidates that we are fairly confident most of the people that we've gathered have either never heard of or they've heard very little about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Americans don't tend to have a lot of opinions about Australian politics. Uh, if they even have opinions about their own. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was that was bleak. Uh, but but they but they did want to choose actual politicians because they wanted uh, people for whom there are already robust Google search results. Yes, yeah. they wanted to use real articles that were written about these two people rather than have to write up a bunch of fake ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they used real articles, a big collection of them. And um, and some of the articles put one candidate in a favorable stance over the other, and other articles were the opposite. They, yeah. they you know, Some favored Abbott, some favored Gillard. And then they also had some articles that they classed as neutral. Yeah. They said, you know, weren't really biased one way or another. So they then went forward with a double-blind test. I'll talk about that in a second. But the researchers first asked each group which of the two candidates they would most likely support in an election based on just a very brief biography of each candidate that was presented in as non-biased a way as possible. And they said that there wasn't really any um, measurable difference between the two candidates. The people didn't really care going in. Yeah, it was like essentially a coin flip situation. Mm -hmm. And then each group had the chance to do research on the two candidates using a mock search engine called (laughs) Kadoodle. In the experiment, I love that. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, so much were... better algorithm than Arthropod Google. Yeah, <laughs> uh, 
anyway, uh, I'm surprised it didn't have Pring or something. But no, it's, it's Kadoodle. So you would use Kadoodle to do a mo- you know, some search on these. You would put in the names of the candidates and the search results would pop up. And, um, uh, they they divided the group in, or groups into three. Uh, they used a double-blind approach, which meant that neither the researchers nor the participants had any knowledge of what the hypothesis of the study was. So they, right. they didn't know why a, they were doing this. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a common thing in in research like this to try to ensure that your researchers or the people working on the experiment aren't giving subtle cues to the right. participants what they should do. Accidentally bias it, right? Because yeah. most of the time participants want to please we as humans want to please everyone. Right. Yeah. So, and so Yeah. And, and because this is all about studying bias in the first place, you don't want to corrupt that with introducing other bias. Then yeah. you can't really see what the results of your intended bias was. Yeah. So uh so none neither the participants or the people administering this had any knowledge of what the hypothesis was or what group anyone was assigned to. Yeah. Or what the purpose of the other groups were, happened to be. So So what happened when these groups uh, did their cadoodle searches? Well, you had one group that received Absolutely neutral results. There were just, it was just like a regular search results page where no candidate was given favorable treatment. Mm-hmm. Then another group would get uh, favorable results for one of the two candidates. The other group got favorable results for the other of the two candidates. Okay. Now, the way this worked is that they had multiple pages that they could click on if they wanted. Yes. So you, you'd get like six pages of results. Yes. And you could review as much of the results as you wanted to. And and all, all of the three groups had the same collection of articles at their disposal. Yeah. Uh, right. It was just in a different order. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So one group might get this staggered kind of response where it's favorable to one candidate, then favorable to another, and then back and forth. Another one might get all of the, you know, pro-Abbott articles at the beginning and then only get to the pro-Gillard articles at the very end, Gillard or Gillard, however you pronounce that. And then the other group would get it the other way around. Yes. So, uh, you know, they, again, no one knew what was going on or was told what was going on at the beginning. Uh, They did, the researchers did decide that they had to insert a question to find out if people were picking up on what was going on. Yeah. But they had to be very careful with how they asked that question. Right, because if you ask the people, did you find these search results biased? Yeah. There, you're kind of giving them a clue yeah, how they hand. should be interpreting what's right. going on. So how do you ask, hey, do you think we totally rigged the search results? Uh, they, they, The way they did it was they said, did anything bother you? It was vague enough where they felt, you know, maybe if no one – is really paying attention, they'll just say, no, nothing bothered me. Uh, it would only be the people who are really focusing that said, yeah, I happened to notice something weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they also offered up a space where you could type in as much as you wanted about mm-hmm. what bothered you of those in that search results page. So they included that, and that was their measurement of how many people detected that there was a bias going on. Um, and then the results were pretty interesting. So they saw, again, that before they they allowed people to do a search on the candidates, there was no real, yeah. there was no contender. There. Nobody cared about these Australian <laughs> politicians one way or another. <laughs> to be fair, no one really cared afterward either. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. Just kidding. Well, after they were able to do the search results, they saw that there was a 48.4% increase in the number of people who said they would vote for the favored candidate of their respective test group. So they called that 48.4% the vote manipulation power or VMP. Or VAMP. Or VMP. VMP. <laughs> Yes. Or I guess it'd be vomp if it's if it's vote like womp womp. Yeah. So so 
48.4%. That sounds like kind of a significant number to me. (laughs) But keeping in mind, these are people who know probably nothing about the candidates. And we're going to explore that in a a later part of this experiment. But just in these test conditions, that's pretty interesting that people were that willing to be swayed just by biased ordering of search results in Google. Again, let us state, all the same articles were available to everybody. It was just a question of in what order they were presented. Uh, Yeah, yeah. and and it turned out that most people could not detect that there was a bias going on. Right. Uh, 75% of the participants said that they did not detect any kind of bias. Yeah, they didn't They didn't click that right. something about this bothered me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, only 25% clicked on it and made some indication that they felt the search engine results were not fair in some way. We, we weren't given the full details of all the results in the, mm. in the paper, but based upon the level of transparency the rest of this report has, I'm pretty confident that that's, that's an accurate representation of what happened. Yeah. Um, because uh, one of the things that, and Joe and I were talking about this before the podcast, one of the things that we were both impressed by was that uh, they were very forthcoming yeah. about the limitations of their testing oh, yeah. procedure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. N- not being an expert, just as a, a lay reader, this seemed like a very good study to me. It seemed yeah. very conscientious and very thoughtful and self-critical about its own, uh, about the limitations of what conclusions we could draw yeah. from their results. Yeah. yeah. Also, the fact that they used double blind made me happy. But uh, at any rate, so they repeated this experiment a couple times in San Diego. The, the experiments one through three were all in San Diego. And they decided, uh, well, maybe we need to bring down that number uh, even lower of the number of people who, who realized that there was manipulation at play. So they said, well, how can we do that? And they thought, well, one thing we could do is we still give the favorable results for candidates to, you know, groups B and C, group A being the control group. But let's insert at the fourth position an article of the opposite viewpoint. Okay, so you would get results where the first page is all pro-Abbott stuff, going eventually into the neutral ones in the later pages, and then finally getting to the pro-Gallard stuff in the final pages. Mm-hmm. But in the third or the fourth or the third place mm-hmm. on the first page, there'd be one pro-Gallard article. Yeah, that was in the the first time they ran it for experiment two was in the fourth position. In the third experiment, uh, third experiment, they moved it to the third position. And they found, first of all, the interesting thing was if they put it in the fourth position, it actually made more people willing to vote for the favored candidate, a 63.3% VMP. That kind of makes sense to me because it seems like they'd still be getting this overall pretty biased message, but they'd start to get the impression based on just one result going the other way that, yeah, I'm getting the full picture here. Yeah, the search results are honest. Uh, Right, exactly. Because when you see just everything from one from one position, then you start going like, yeah, is there a bias here? Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe someone over at Google's really pro-Abbott or Kadoodle. I'm Kadoodle. sorry, Kadoodle. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So th- this also meant that fewer people were able to tell that something was not on the up and up. 80, <laughs> 85% of the participants were uh, did not indicate at all that they were aware of a bias. So down to 15% of the group. Then they did it a third time. And this time, that's when they moved it to the third position instead of the fourth position. And uh, this time it was a lower VMP of 36.7%. But they didn't get any hits at all on a detection of bias. So if if your goal is to make sure (laughs) no one knows you're messing around, you put that you put the the one negative position in, in number three 
and you'll get a lower result overall, but no one knows you're up to something. And it's still a significant result. All right. So this is very interesting. But obviously, the next step is what would happen if we tried to scale up these sample sizes and get more people to take this test? Yeah. So oh, they, sure. they then, the sample size is one of those biases in any study that is sure. problematic. Yeah. 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 If, the if more have, the more people you test, the less chance there is of error. Right. With 102, you you're you don't have enough uh, <laughs> quote unquote random element in there to to make sure that you're you haven't skewed the results just through the sample size just of through the population. choosing a yeah. certain demographics or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, they, so next they went to the Mechanical Turk. Yeah. Mechanical <laughs> Turk. Amazon's Mechanical Turk, which has been designed to help gather subjects for various types of of, uh, of studies. And they were able to get 2,100 volunteers. They got volunteers from all the 50 states in the United States. Uh, and the demographics were interesting. Uh, they weren't necessarily aiming for specific demographics. What it turned out to be was that uh, 19.5% of the subjects were self-identifying as conservative and 50.2% as liberal. Uh, and then you had, you know, others on that spectrum as well. And it was just interesting that that was the, the numbers, especially when you start looking at the results uh, per demographic toward the end. So they found out that the, the VMP, the VOMP, uh, in VOMP. this case, they, they repeat the same test. So it's the same Australian prime minister candidates. Uh, they found that it was 37.1% or once you do some post-stratification adjustments, uh, it's 36.7%. Post-stratification is all about, you know, you, you take the the sample size that you had and the demographics that were based off of that, and then you have to scale it up to the general demographics and adjust mm-hmm. the numbers based on, upon the weight of mm-hmm. those numbers. So that's why it dipped down to 36.7% once they fin- finished uh, with that. They The results indicated that some demographics were more vulnerable to this manipulation than others. Yeah, huh. so depending on some facts about you, you might be more susceptible to bias ordering and information presentation. So one weird example that stuck out to me is apparently self-labeled divorcees were more vulnerable than self-labeled married subjects. Yeah, if you were a self-labeled divorcee <laughs> Republican, then you were pretty much going to be led astray by the search engine the, results yeah, page. This was another strange thing it found is that apparently self-labeled Republicans were more swayed by the order of presentation than self-labeled Democrats. Oh, yeah. like by a bunch. Uh, Republicans were at 54.4% and self-labeled Democrats were at 37 7.7%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Moderate Republicans were the most vulnerable group out of all of them. Keep in mind that they were also a small group because yeah. the overall number of people who identified as Republican was, or at least conservative anyway, was 19.2%. But yeah, they, they had a VMP of 80%. The lowest VMP, weirdly enough, was in a particular Income, income bracket, yeah. which very seemed very weird to me. Yeah, yeah forty thousand to forty nine 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 thousand. So those are, people are very Google savvy. They're twenty two point five percent VMP. So uh, this is one of those things where you know you can't necessarily draw broad conclusions based right. upon this study, but it was one of those things they noticed and they said, "Hey, this might mean." That if you wanted to manipulate a, you know, an election in some way, you would use this kind of information to know who to target the most. Yeah. Because 
it would tell you which ones are you going to get the biggest return on investment, assuming yeah. that that this manipulation actually results in action, mm-hmm. which is a big assumption we'll get into a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So, so you're going to get way more bang for your buck if you do skewed search results to divorced moderate Republicans <laughs> as opposed to married people who make 40,000 to 49,000. Yeah, who are Democrats. Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and what about bias in this section of the study? This is crazy. Um, so based upon, the, again, they use the same approach as before to say, hey, did anything bother you about the search results? Mm-hmm. Uh, they There was a, a 45% VMP for people who detected a bias and a 36.3% for people who were unaware of a bias. In other words... Whoa, whoa, whoa. So hold on. Yes. The people who <laughs> said something bothered me about these results, yeah. I think they were biased, were more affected by the bias. Yes. That being that aware of the bias... So counter Yeah. Except we've been conditioned that the first page of search results are the best results for your query. So if you're conditioned to the point where... I know that the thing I want, the information I need, is on that first page. Even if I think it's biased, well, it's got to be right. <laughs> it's got to really? be the most relevant. Because Kadoodle wouldn't lie to me. Why would I go to page two? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so oh, now, it, now they're just saying that that's that's a possible answer for that particular right. Uh, that's data their blend. interpretation. Right. Not, they don't. Yeah. They don't know for sure that that's the case. And also, again, using the really vague "what bothered you about this" could mean that there's a little gray area around all of this as well. Yeah. Okay. So there was one more phase of the experiment that they carried out, and I thought this was a very interesting next step because as soon as I was this part in the study, I was like, well. All these are having to do with candidates that we don't have preformed opinions about, or right. almost nobody in the study had preformed opinions mm-hmm. about. Which obviously is not how reality works. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and, when, when you're when you're actually a voter in an election, you probably have some preconceptions and biases going into your research. Not only that, but you have a stake in it. Yeah. If you're a U.S. citizen, you have very little stake in who is prime minister of Australia. In the grand scheme of things, yes, we're all connected, and I love all of you as brothers and sisters. However, that being said, <laughs> I mean, it might affect the uh, probability of getting future Crocodile Dundee sequels. Okay, I know how I vote on that. So, at any rate, uh, so <laughs> but what they wanted to do was use this in a real world situation, so they could determine how big of an effect, if any, would there be in in that instance. And so, what they did was they went to India. There were these enormous elections. There were something like 800 million potential registered voters, of which 600, I think, 630 million went and voted. I read that at the time it was the largest election in human history. Yeah, this was in 2014. Yeah. So what they wanted to do was run the same experiment, but actually using real candidates in this election. They selected 2,150 voters in India who had not yet voted on one of three candidates for a specific position. Uh, they also, again, they, they compensated them. Uh, the compensation, by the way, included one interesting option. Uh, they would either 
give it ranged from one to four dollars depending upon where you were. Mm-hmm. But they also gave an offer of giving donating a dollar fifty to a charity that would feed poor Indian children. Oh. So at mm-hmm. the end of it, around fifteen hundred dollars was raised for oh. for kids, cool. which was awesome. So it was cool that they did that. You know, it was uh, that they were giving back into this community. Yeah, uh, one of the things they pointed out now in in all these cases, I think they wanted to specify that they were taking care not to cause any harm to the participants or to the democratic process. Right. And in the other cases, it didn't really matter because it was referring to past elections in another country. Yeah, there was no way that any of the results would ever have any effect on things that had already happened because causality, y'all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an election that's ongoing in yes. a country where the people who are participating had the opportunity to have their minds changed. And this could actually affect the election. But – they did say that it was a small enough sample size that they didn't think it was going to sway the election. <laughs> 2,150 out of 630 million is yeah. not, not significant. Uh, yeah. uh, and also one of the interesting things they pointed out is that the biases that might come as a result of this study would be balanced out because yeah. they're doing it for all the candidates in turn. Right. They were they were equally distributed among each of the candidates because the group was subdivided into, I assume, four Groups this time, a control group, a and, control, yeah. and three, yeah. one for each of the candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, they were using real uh, articles that had been written about these actual candidates, and then they had to figure out how to rank these in search to favor each of the candidates, and then uh, randomly distribute them for the control group. Yeah, they said they had to actually get the help of an Indian like consultant to help them determine exactly which ones were most biased towards which candidates. Yeah, uh, yeah, and they they had a little bit more of a problem in in this study trying to work that out. Yeah, yeah in fact, they they have numbers for the pre-optimization and the post-optimization of the test, which. I'll get into in a second because of that very thing. You know, they had to bring a consultant in because they said we have a limited understanding of Indian politics being these researchers from the United States uh, and and felt that maybe what we were presenting people was not truly the best arranged list of search results in order to see if the effect is real in a real world setting. So that's why they hired the consultant. But that was already when they had already started this this uh, experiment. So it did affect the numbers. I'll get into that in a second. So the overall VMP for the whole experiment was only, quote unquote, 10.6 percent. But there are a lot of things you have to take into consideration here. One is that you didn't have these candidates who were complete unknowns to the people in question, right? These these were people already had some ideas about these various candidates. Some people had very strong opinions about these candidates going into the experiment. Yeah. And they found that those people were the least likely to be swayed. Yes. So yeah, that 10.6%, that's kind of what you get after you look at the pre and post optimization of the experiment. So before they brought the consultant on, uh, it was trending toward 9.5%, so lower. Then after they got the consultant, it went to 12.3%. So possibly, had they brought the consultant on from the very beginning, that number would be higher. One thing that did impact the number was that there was a group that had a very strong counter-reaction to the search results. Yeah, this was something I don't think was encountered in any other phase of this research, as far as I noticed. Yeah. But it was a, a negative VMP, meaning 
that that if you presented search results biased toward one candidate, it actually worked against that candidate. Yeah, people were more likely to vote for one of the other candidates. And that one demographic was conservative female voters yeah. in huh. India with a negative VMP of negative 11.8%. So with this one particular demographic in this test group, if you showed them a list of articles that were all biased in favor of one politician, it worked against that politician's interest. Right. And the researchers said it might suggest an oppositional attitude or it may be a tendency to favor an underdog, someone that you want to see the person who is trailing behind to come from that position and take it all. And uh, they said that if you eliminated that group from the results – it would raise the VMP from 10.6% to 19.8%. It actually goes up to in the 20s, depending upon the, the various uh, uh, implications they talk about later, but up to 19.8%. And they said eliminating them from the results is actually not an unfair thing to do, because if in a real world setting you were attempting to manipulate the results of an election, you would specifically target the people that you felt you could uh, you could influence you could and you would specifically avoid the, the wanted, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, you could even take advantage of this. Like if you knew this was the effect for certain demographics of people, you could pick those people and show them biases. Uh, you could show them results with bias in the opposite direction. Right. Mm-hmm. Or at least of the, the candidate you would least want. Oh, yeah. Right, elected. Right. Yeah. So uh, you could even have it work for you in that sense. So. When you get that through all of these different experiments, what does this ultimately mean? You get you have to get to the the true analysis. You know, does this actually matter? Well, according to the researchers, they think yeah, yeah. They, they have got a statistically significant and very interesting and perhaps worrying set of results on their hands. So I, I want to read this one quote from the from the final analysis section of their paper. They said. Our investigation suggests that with optimized targeted rankings, a VMP of at least 20 percent should be relatively easy to achieve in real elections, even if only 60 percent of a population had Internet access and only 10 percent of voters were undecided. That would still allow control of elections with win margins up to one point two percent. And that includes a lot of elections. There are. Close elections all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So if you're talking about a very like razor thin kind of lead, then something like this would be enough to put one candidate in front of the other. Yeah. Certainly here in the United States, especially in larger elections like the presidential election, that is the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could not that not. I mean, if you look at the overall numbers of a presidential election, it may not look very close. But you have to remember that the elections in the U.S. for presidents are are decided state by state. Right. So what you could do then is target one or two key close races in swing states. Yeah. And those are the only things you'd have to push over the edge. Yeah, because you already know that tackling any state that's really entrenched in one camp or the other is kind of uh, it's a lost cause. There's no point in it. You're not going to be able to create enough of a swing in that to make a big difference. Right. So, but yeah. But if you can convert 1.2% of Ohio or yeah. Florida or whatever state, you know, is the big swing state that year, that can win an election. Yep. So, uh it mostly it looks like these these sort of uh tactics would aff- would mostly affect uh, undecided voters, people who had not already made a decision on on one candidate versus another. Uh if you have already made that decision, it may be that these search results aren't 
compelling enough for you to change your mind. It's very difficult to change someone's mind anyway. Uh, but, <laughs> especially um, by presenting them evidence. Yeah, especially in the realm of politics. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That makes so, people dig in, dig in harder. Yeah. But yeah, if uh, that's if, science, kids. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if the top search results are positive for a candidate to an undecided voter, that voter may be feeling more inclined to vote for that candidate. Uh, but they do also point out, and this is one of those things we were mentioning earlier about how they were quick to say the limitations of their study. They say that there is a known laboratory effect in general, not just for this study, but for lots of stuff. A laboratory effect where you might observe something in the lab that seems really relevant, but in the real world, it becomes less so. And they said that it may be that this this influence is very, uh, it's tenuous. It doesn't mm. last very long either. So it may be that within an hour, whatever effect there was kind of wears off. So unless you, unless you send up the search results page and then boot that person out the door to go to the polls, <laughs> it, it may end up not being a big enough effect to actually uh, create action. So, uh, but still could be, it could be the element that, that does push someone to choose one candidate over another. And that alone raises the question of how do we, how do we account for this? How do we make sure we're aware of it? And is anyone doing this on purpose? Or if they're not even doing it on purpose, what do we do to make sure it doesn't like affect things? Well, th that's the really crazy thing to me is, is that even if even if no one is purposefully manipulating Google search results like this, the algorithm could be doing it on its own. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there could be an effective bias coming out of Google results that is already changing the outcomes of elections without anybody wanting it to happen. It could just or be a total for it yeah. to happen at any rate. Yeah. yeah, it could be an accidental byproduct of something that the algorithm does for completely neutral political, non-political reasons. Well, and you also have to remember that algorithms are designed by people. Yeah. They're not designed. Yeah. They're not spawned by, you know, deep thought, the uncaring, <laughs> the uncaring thinking machine at the heart of the universe. It's actually stuff that, that human beings have designed. And sometimes that introduces a bias. And in fact, I would argue that the concept of page ranking already has at least some element of bias. There's no real objective way of saying this page is more important than this page. Therefore, this the, this first page needs to be ranked first in the search results. Eventually, you have to come to uh, a decision that may have some bias to it to, to actually make that determination. Mm -hmm. uh, now, that bias may not be inherent in the algorithm. It may be inherent in how everyone else is treating that page. And that's how it got to number one. But the algorithm is the thing that dis determines what criteria are most important when making that determination. So. Sure. It's, uh, it's, it, it's a long winding road to get there, but the ultimate, the ultimate answer here is that search results could totally like affect an election, y'all. Okay. To be fair, people aren't getting all of their information about candidates for elections from Google. Right. No, yeah. sometimes they watch a man on TV yell at them. Yeah. Yay! That's my favorite thing to Some, do. Sometimes they'll change the channel and watch a different man on TV yell at them. Or sometimes they listen to their friends on Facebook who are ranting about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, it, uh, you know, there are so many different avenues that uh, are open to us about, you know, where we get our information for this sort of stuff. Um, in a world where we would only get this information from the Internet, obviously this would have a much greater effect than uh, it does already. So... 
you know, you can ask the question of how many people actually use the Internet to do active research on political candidates. And that would give you a better idea of how effective this is in the long run. Uh, I honestly don't know that answer. You know, I don't know how many people of the of the, the people who go and vote or the people who are considering voting, how many of them take the time to actually do Google style research on candidates as opposed to just seeing what their friends are saying or uh, consuming stuff in other forms of yeah. media. Well, of course, Google results aren't the only venue through which Internet uh, Internet companies of various kinds could change the outcomes of elections without even producing content of their own just by choosing in what order and when we see content. Think about Facebook again. You know, we mm-hmm. talked about that uh, get out the vote message earlier on Facebook. What if they just showed it to one party? Or what if the things that were featured in your news feed, the algorithm for selecting those things had a political slant? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, like let's say that uh, my good buddy uh, posts a, a – uh, um, an article about Pinchy O'Houlihan, which normally I would like the heck out of, but because Facebook is anti-Pinchy O'Houlihan. Right. Facebook is now a, in the anarchist crab camp yeah, they, it, because it, they've seen the light of – I always forget. Is it Claus McGrabby Claus. Look, so you don't even know your candidate's name. How am I supposed <laughs> to But Dr. McGrabby Claus supports freedom. Oh, now doctor, huh? So yeah. Went, got, is a PhD, I assume. At any rate, Pinchy O'Houlihan, because Facebook hates Pinchy O'Houlihan, they end up essentially burying that, that uh, link. That story, so that, yeah. Yeah, so on my feed, which features stuff that people have posted, it doesn't pop up at all. If I were to go to my friend's feed, I would see it there because Facebook allows you to go ahead and post it to your own feed. Mm-hmm. They just don't feature that anywhere right. else. Mm-hmm. So this that is a be, thing you, you might not have even realized this. Yeah. Like you don't see everything your friends on Facebook post unless you've specifically opted to follow them directly. There, there are a lot of things and that, placed a certain amount of importance oh, on yeah. on what they post by liking and commenting on it, or or by opting in. Via Via a button that is ridiculously hidden. Like the close friends button. If you do a close friends button, not only do you get everything, it notifies you when someone posts something. Mm-hmm. Never, ever make me your close friend. <laughs> I post too much to Facebook. You don't want that to happen to you. I'm just saying. I I, I don't want that to happen to you either. <laughs> Thank you for your concern, Jonathan. You're welcome. But, uh, but – so, so this kind of sorting is happening all the time on Facebook, uh, based on what posts you interact with and, and your own biases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, what we see on Facebook is determined by what we interact with. And, yeah. and so therefore, you know, aside from the, from the echo chamber that we all create by choosing who we're friends with on Facebook and, you know, under the assumption that most of your friends are probably like-minded, mm-hmm. uh, it, that it, it it just it becomes even more smaller and echoier yeah. uh when you take these kind of algorithms into account yeah so it's one of those things where uh you know it it would be entirely possible for a company like facebook or google to manipulate things so that uh a, a specific side of the story is being favored over another and uh, and that could definitely affect how we perceive those stories. Or I just wanted to say one more thing. Uh, it could be not just what we see and what we don't see, but the order in which we see it in yeah. our feed. Because mm-hmm. we know, as we've said before, things like uh, recency and priority matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The most recent thing you you have encountered is or, more likely to have a, a longer effect on or you. Or the first thing you encounter. Or the first thing on a list. Yeah. Boy, I never want to be the person who has to make the decision of – 
if you're making a ballot, whose name comes first? Who, right? That's I mean, you know, you could like, well, we're just going to go alphabetical order <laughs> and and let let and leave the blame to the Latin alphabet. Uh, it seems like the, I don't know how they actually do it. It seems like they could randomize that for equality, right? Mm-hmm. They could randomize it, especially with electronic digital, voting machines. Yeah. You could yeah. you could make it so that every single person who comes up gets a random 50, ordering 50 of those. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah, or however many yeah, candidates, candidates there, there are. are. Uh, but in the United States, come on, let's be honest, this 50 50 is pretty much what we <laughs> tend to get. The uh, crab party is on the rise. Yeah. Well, the lobster imperialists really don't care how the voting goes. That's kind of how imperialists <laughs> are. We I like vote, to um, imagine that there's a vote. <laughs> I vote algae, you guys. I'm, I'm green party. You green know, that's party, the thing. Nice. You win because Blue you green, can, really. you can suffocate party. us all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on that happy note, uh, this was really an interesting thing to look at. The study, like like we said, is first of all, it's incredibly accessible. It's very easy to read. Yeah, it is not like three a typical cheers study. for open access science. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank so you guys. definitely check Research that out <laughs> if, if you're interested in uh, finding out exactly how they went about putting this this uh, this study together and the criteria they used. It is really easy to read. It's fascinating, and like I said, uh, you know, it it's. I admire their work and their approach to their work. That uh, I think it's something that I want to see more of in all sorts of areas of science. And meanwhile, if you guys have suggestions of future topics that we can tackle here on Forward Thinking, or you've got anything you want to say about this episode, send us a message. The email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com, or drop us a line on Twitter. We are FWThinking there, or just search FWThinking over on Facebook. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi. 
Jackie here, founder of Exo Jackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, Exo Jackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at XOJACQUI.com. Made for women by women. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Thermador at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build.